0: Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. I'm so happy that spring training has started. We could use a little better weather in the mid-Atlantic, but it's always good when baseball is back. We've got three guests on today's show. Oakland A's second baseman and outfielder, Tony Kemp, will be with us in a second. We also continue our conversations with women working in baseball. We'll be joined by Orioles broadcaster, Melanie Newman. And Sabre CEO, Scott Bush, will join us for a few minutes to talk about the Sabre Analytics Conference. But first, Oakland A's second baseman and outfielder Tony Kemp. Tony started just over half of the A's games at second base last season. He had 247, but with a 363 on-base percentage and 114 plate appearances for the AL West Champs. He's played parts of five seasons in the majors with the Astros and Cubs, starred and graduated from Vanderbilt University. Plenty to talk about both on and off the field. We normally talk defense first but I want to start with offense. And I know it's only 114 plate appearances, uh, but your strikeout walk numbers last year in particular were better. They were a little different than they typically are for you. Is there something that you did within uh, how you approached uh, your plate appearances, the change that led to that happening?
1: You know, honestly, I think what I used to my advantage was, you know, we had a shortened season. So every at bat was, I felt heightened even more. And I feel like being able to come out of a season like last year and have more walks than strikeouts um, was something that I carried into the offseason that I was able to shrink the zone even more. You know, I'm already a small guy. So my strike zone is not, you know, big to begin with, but that was one of the things that, you know, you have to know what type of player you are. And I know that my strengths are getting on base, stealing bags, scoring runs. So honestly it was like get on base any way you can and, Honestly, it sounds <laughs> it sounds simple, but uh, honestly, just swing at the strikes and take the balls, and uh, kind of, you know, not really work toward the towards the pitcher's strengths, but um, work toward your strengths. And I feel like it paid off for me last year.
0: Now you had played four seasons in the big leagues before last year, and then last year as well. But you really, your numbers were such that you had a little more than a season's worth. Full season's worth of plate appearances. How long does it take for a hitter to learn what he typically needs to learn?
1: Yeah, and I think that's the important question. You know, obviously, we can talk more about it. But um, I think the number one answer I give to most guys is every player coming through the minor leagues needs to know who that player is in his own heart and understanding what they do well. And obviously, working on their weaknesses, but strengthening their strengths. And Um, I think one thing for me, especially when you're a utility player and you're not getting at bats every day, you know, I think it's even harder because you see live, you see pitching, you sit, you get a pinch hit, you come in late in the game and, you know, obviously your batting average is not going to be something that um, you want to look at. And so I honestly just had to say, you know, the batting average doesn't matter. Hit ball hard, you win. Um, How are you going to help the team win? Are you getting that runner over to third base? runner on second base, one out, you know, what are you doing to help the team win? I feel like that kind of propelled me to be able to stay around the big leagues and just run the base as well and just do do the little things um, the best that I could.
0: There's one other hitting question. Um, you're listed, at, as you said, you know, 5'6", 160 pounds. You're not someone who's necessarily going to hit a lot of barrels. Uh, when you put your work in in batting practice, like, what, what do you work on and what do you advise smaller players to work on?
1: Yeah, and, you know, I, I – incorporated my two and finish that I had in the Cape and then my junior year so I have that back and I think now being it's it's crazy because you know this is year nine for me in professional baseball and now I honestly feel like I know how to hit and that sounds crazy but you know being able to work with our hitting coach and really understand you know it's not about the results that you create in the cage. It's about how you're attacking the baseball and what your body is doing through the zone, hitting zone instead of doing flips in a cage and swinging to get, it sounds kind of, it sounds, it's, it's, it's hard to explain because yes, you get the result on, off of, of, a, of, of a front flip. Yes, you get the result of a line drive to the back of the cage. Did you put your body in the best position? Because when you're in the cage and you're putting in your work, is very easy to fall in a lull of making yourself get results with bad mechanics. And now it's focusing on, I'm not worried about the result. I'm worried about what my body is doing through the hitting zone. So it's two separate things because, yes, you can get a line drive, but you can get a line drive with ugly mechanics.
0: You're a small guy. What advantages does a small guy have on defense?
1: That's a great question. Are there any advantages? That's for you to tell us. (laughs) Um, You know, there's there's some times where I'm laying out for balls and I'm like, man, if I just had two, three more inches, I would have got that. But, you know, I guess the advantages are being able to read swings, being able to see what a guy does. And, um, you know, obviously it doesn't matter if you're small or big, but I think what I have to do when I'm in the field is maximize my reaction time once the ball reaches the hitting zone and knowing if a hitter is early on off-speed pitch? Is he late on the heater? Um, is he sitting on a curveball? And, you know, being able to cover the four hole and up the middle um, are two to three different things that, you know, you want to put your body in the best position, even though they have you in a certain position. But uh, that reaction time through the hitting zone and seeing what hitters are doing, I, I would say that's one thing that I really worked on.
0: How much of a handle do you have on knowing how much ground you can cover?
1: Yeah, that's the biggest thing for me. You know, it was our first day on Monday, and I love to know where my body's at. So I love to be challenged. Uh, Mark Kotze, is a, he's always hit me ground balls. And so, um, you know, we do three balls at the end, kind of where he challenges me to see if I can go get the ball to my left or to my right. He doesn't tell me. Um, it's basically reaction, but it, it also allows me to know what angle I have to take to my left, to my right is it four to five steps in a dive? Can I slide or do I need to do go to a backhand? And so I think that is really what kind of helped me is uh, when you dive in practice, you kind of put your body in a position of, okay, it's bouncing, it's bouncing, it's bouncing, and then you lay out. So um, that's probably one of the things that I like to do in practice is just, you know, you got to get dirty to understand where you're going to be at in the game.
0: We've talked to players about learning ballparks. You've played in Wrigley with Brick Ivy in the outfield. You've played in Houston with all sorts of bells and whistles and you played in Oakland with the high fences. What goes into learning how to play at a particular park?
2: Oh, what
1: a great question. So when I was in Houston, there are certain pitches that you can get your A swing off and you can get your B swing off. When you're playing in the Coliseum or in Wrigley and it's not climate control, the ball travels completely different. The wind has a lot to do with it. And so I always like to tell people, when I got to Double A Corpus Christi, there was a wind tunnel that went from right center to left center. So any ball that you backspun in the right center gap would get caught. So I had to learn to use the other field because there was just outs on the right side of the field. So it really allowed me to let my eyes and let my body see the ball travel longer and stuff. And so that's where I kind of learned that, hey, every ballpark is going to be different and you're going to have to understand what pitches you're going to have to take and what pitches you're going to have to swing at in order for you to be the most successful. So uh, playing in Wrigley and seeing the winds and then playing in Houston where it's climate controlled and then going to the Coliseum where there's a marine layer at 8 p.m. every night and you hit balls at 105 at a 38 degree angle and they're getting caught the warning track. It's like, okay, you know, that's when you have to hone in on your line drive approach more.
0: Those are things that a player can bring that fans just don't kind of have a, a full picture of. Um, thank you for that. Um, yeah. Can you walk us through, we always ask players to walk us through their favorite defensive play.
1: So there's a catch uh, my junior year at Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much took two, it was a, like a low soft line drive and Mike consistency was playing right field. And I went back, dove backwards and caught the ball and landed on my knees. And he looked at me and it was like, that's the best catch I've ever seen in my entire life. You know, that's probably, I mean, that's up there. There's so many more, but that one, that one definitely sticks out. Is there a major league one? I had a double play last year. Chris Bassett was pitching against the Angels and runners on second and third, I think, one out. And Anthony Rendon had hit a ball to me. And I tried to be too quick, turn it play, ball kicks off my knee, make an error, went, you know, run scores. And, you know, the very next batter was Brian Goodwin. And, He hits a ball 103 off the bat sinking line drive that I dive up the middle catch flip to second for a double play to get us out the inning and I think it goes back to not allowing that error to get in my way of not if I let that error get to me then there's no way I'm ready for that screaming line drive that goes up the middle so you know, I always tell guys like it's always about your short term memory when you're playing the game because you know the, the next pitch could next ball can be at you, and so that was probably one of my favorite plays from last year.
0: There are a couple of other guys that are in your infield that are that make great plays on a regular basis. Do you have one that, or something that particularly impresses you about either of the mats?
1: When I was in Double A, I knew these guys were going to be special. When I was in Corpus Christi, um, they were coming up together. You know, Matt Chapman from Cal State Fullerton and Matt Olson was coming out of high school. He's actually committed to come to Vandy, but you know he got he got over a million dollars coming out of the draft, so he ended up going. But honestly, it's I wish I could show you guys how hard these guys work getting ground balls each day. You know these guys take 150 to 200 ground balls each day, and obviously it makes me better because I'm like, okay, I need to, if, I'm, I don't have any gold gloves in the big league, so I need to be taking more ground balls too. But there was a play last year that Chapman ranged over to his uh, left in the six hole turn did a 180, threw it to Matt Olson and hit him right in the chest. And, you know, those are things that elite guys, you know, they make those, pl- everybody doesn't make those plays. And that's why he has a platinum glove. And that's why, you know, Olsen has gold gloves over there too. So uh, there's some special guys, you know, they're going to stick around for a long time.
0: So I want to segue into some off the field things, but one more on the field thing first. I'm 5'8". I'm a small guy too. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was thinking about something that came up on Twitter where people asked, was there someone that you ever stood next to where you were just kind of like blown away by their size? And I had two that I thought of baseball-wise that came to mind right away. One was Frank Thomas and the other was Noah Syndergaard.
1: I'm curious who your guy is. It's got to be Aaron Judge. I mean, it's got to be. I think you've seen the side-by-side of Judge and Altuve. Yes. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much what me and Judge look like. So my college (laughs) roommate... Um, when we were in the Cape Cod League, was Judge's roommate. So me and Judge had like a mutual mutual friend. We obviously saw each other in the Futures game, and so we've always kept tabs on each other. So um, happy for all the success that success that guy has, but he's a monster.
0: You need to get in a picture with him because that Altuve one just seems to circulate all over the place. No, you need, you need yeah, the no, day. it's okay. It's okay. I don't,
1: <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't need that. I don't need that publicity. <laughs> all
0: right, onto something more serious. Uh, I want to segue to this. Last June. In the midst of uh, all of the things that were happening in the country, you sent out a tweet and it basically said, let's talk. You invited people to reach out to you directly and talk in the midst of the protests related to George Floyd's death in Minnesota. I've seen stories about this. You've talked about this a number of times. I know you said it, it, that you felt like it was impactful. How many people did you end up talking to and what came it?
1: Yeah, so my wife actually was helping me out answering people. Um, I think we we I think we answered over 500 people uh, between Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter. But you know, honestly, you know, with the whole George Floyd thing, it was kind of one of those things to where I felt like it was a time in America where it, you know a conversation needed to be had, and just talking to my wife. And I was depressed at the time, so I knew other people were you know feeling not so we- not so good after you know, the murder. And, you know, I just felt like being able to just have people understand about like, sometimes you might have backhanded compliments, like you might say, you know, this guy, he, you know, you speak well. And, you know, I always got that coming up, obviously being the only black kid on the baseball team. And it wasn't until till I got older to where, you know, I kind of understood that, you know, it kind of meant that, um, you know, you talk well for, you know, a black person. And well, you um, you talk white. And so, you know, just educating people on like, you might think that you're giving a compliment, but it's not really, it's not really a compliment. And so, you know, being able to just reach those people and say, Hey, I'm a white suburban woman. How can I help with this with race issues? And, you know, I pretty much just said, it starts in your inner circle and it starts with, you know, if you're in a group of five to six people and someone makes a a racial comment and, kind of lasted off, you know, you're gonna have to be that person that stands up and say, hey, that's not cool. And, you know, we don't do that here. And, you know, I told people you're gonna, you might lose some friends. But you know, those people shouldn't have been your friends in the first place if they don't, you know, agree with you. So we reached a lot of people. I mean, the plus one effect has exceeded all of our expectations. And I'm happy it's still going on now.
0: What uh, what is next in that regard?
1: Yeah, so I actually went up to RIT, which is Rochester Institute of Technology. And me and my good buddy Max Stassi went up there and the next thing we have in the works is their athletic program wants to do a diversity program and they want to include the plus one effect in it so right now we're in the works of seeing if we can change the color wave to orange and orange and white for them and sending them like a hundred shirts or so because now they want to bring the plus one effect you know into the school after talking to the head coach and stuff so that's kind of the thing that's in the works right now, but in multiple schools. My wife is like she's a big contributor to all this too. So like she's like the voice behind myself as well. what's her name? Her name's Michelle. We got to give we got to give her props. Proper uh, proper recognition here. Oh yeah, no, for, sure, for <laughs> sure. She deserves it all.
0: How has your wife influenced your baseball career?
1: You know, we talk about it a lot. You know, and it was one of those things to where, you know, she was in the number 1 program of radio and television arts in Canada and you know, we had to have some serious conversations of about our career paths and where we wanted to end up. And she was like, you know, she had a great opportunity to stay in Toronto and, you know, had opportunities to work in a career that she had set herself up for. And I was working to get to the big leagues. And, um, you know, she decided to take an internship in Nashville my junior year. And I ended up getting player of the year just because, like, I didn't have to worry about my girlfriend walking home at night and her calling me. Like, I had so many so many worries were taking off of my shoulders, just her being around me. And, it, you know, we had a funny conversation. Actually, I guess it wasn't funny, but um, you know, I get drafted in 2013 and, you know, I'm like a month in, I'm in mean, a month in the pro ball. And she's like, all right, so how long are we going to give this? And I'm like, what do you mean? How long are we going to give this? She's like, right, well, what's like the average time a person makes it to the big leagues. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, she's giving me a timetable on when I need to make it to the show. And so, um, you know, I was like, well, usually it's like four full seasons. Right. And uh, in the back of my head, we were talking about this. We were actually talking about this like a couple weeks ago. And I was like, it actually kind of lit a fire underneath me. Like, "Okay, she's not messing around. Like, I really need to have my stuff together. And, you know, that's when I was just trying to go each step, each step, each step. And, you know, in a way, without even thinking about it, she pushed me to be better, you know, not to rush myself, but to make sure that I'm moving in the right direction.
0: A couple of quick things here. Just for for more information about the Plus One Effect, where can people go?
1: They can go to my Twitter. Um, It is in my bio. There's a link to the Plus One Effect website. And also on my Instagram, it's in my bio as well. Just click the link and it'll take you uh, to the T-shirt. We're actually uh, transitioning from Gideon's Army, which is a charity in Nashville, to San Francisco Bay Area, which is... Um, influencing positive coaching in the Bay Area. So,
0: Two quick questions just to wrap up here. Uh, one, I know that you've spoken up about the idea of making sure baseball is fun. Mm-hmm. You've been known to do backflips on the field. Are you adding <laughs> anything else to the fun repertoire? And are there <laughs> any ideas that you'd like to see implemented along those lines? I'm going to have to watch the backflips,
1: man. I'm 29 now, and it's <laughs> like <laughs> my wife's like, you know, your body is not the same as you when you're 24. I was like, yeah, you're right. I don't know. I don't know how many backups I'm going to do. You know, I think it's, uh, you know, I think one person comes to mind about making baseball fun. And again, and it's uh, Tim Anderson. And, you know, he's a guy that is definitely changing the game. And, you know, when you, when you grow up, you see baseball and you're not supposed to show emotion and you're always supposed to hide all of your, you know, energy behind your sleeve. And I think one thing that he does is he's, you know, he's in the position now to where he's in a long-term deal with Chicago that, he can kind of have that platform to say, Hey, no, baseball's fun. Like let's treat it fun. And, you know, Mookie Betts is doing the same thing. So I think we're in good hands. I think there's a, I'm not going to quite get into the whole bat flip thing because that's a whole different story. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, I think guys are, I think guys are making baseball fun again.
0: All right. Last, last question. Earlier uh, this off season, we did a show about Negro league baseball history. We actually talked about the great defensive players of the Negro leagues learned a lot there. This is black history month. We're nearing the end of the month. Is there anyone black history baseball or otherwise that you would like to pay tribute to or acknowledge here?
1: I think the biggest part and with like black history month and what Jackie Robinson did and what Adobe uh, did with the Indians. And I think for me, it's, it's probably going to have to be Satchel Paige. You know, he was just a pioneer and he was a workhorse. And uh, you go back to those videos of the black and white and him just pretty much striking out every batter that walked up there was one thing that, you know, obviously I think is, you know, without guys like that paving the way, there's no way that I could have a career in the big leagues myself. So I'd probably have to be him.
0: It was fun to watch him. We hope it'll be fun to watch you this year. Tony Kemp, thanks for joining us. No,
1: thanks for having me
0: anytime. On our last podcast, we talked with Rachel Balkovic, got the perspective of someone working through the minor leagues now as a hitting coach. Melanie Newman is someone who took a path through the minor leagues from a broadcast perspective, and she's entering her second season as one of the radio voices of the Orioles. Thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me on. It's actually funny that today was the day we record. It's the one-year anniversary of getting to announce that I joined Baltimore. Um, So it's a nice time to reflect.
0: Congratulations. All right. So to start with, I wanted to flash back to something that I did last August to kind of make a larger point. I love listening to baseball on the radio, and I love broadcasting in general. And on a night in August, I walked around my apartment complex around seven o'clock at night, and I said, I'm going to listen to about half a dozen crews, and I'm going to try and find one thing that I really like about each of them, and I'll give them a half inning to an inning. Yours was the first crew that I got to listen to, uh, you and Jeff Arnold. And I noticed two things. I'll get to both, but I want to just focus on one first. The main one that I wanted to focus on was the natural flow of conversation between you and Jeff specific to the game. Now, you listen to some broadcasters. Vin Scully was known for wanting to work alone. Some of the older school guys, they like to work alone. The other person doesn't get to talk as much over the course of an inning you were both working together for the first time. Circumstances were arduous with with COVID. Can you tell us about how your broadcast relationship developed and how you were able to to formulate this broadcast that is very conversational in nature?
3: It's funny because a lot of people think off the bat, especially when they see our resumes, that um, that was really the first time of getting to work with each other. But I was really fortunate. It's one of those serendipitous things that Jeff and I were in the Carolina League together in 2019. So he was with Frederick, of course, an Orioles affiliate. I was with the Salem Red Sox. And um, a majority of our 150-ish games that we played that year, I was solo. I had a partner for a handful. Um, so when you, you factor in, it's you know the 50th consecutive game that for five hours a night, I'm having a conversation with myself. Um, it's nice to, to break it up a little bit. And Lucky for me, when I got the job with Salem, actually a mutual friend of ours, Uh, Out in Arizona, Mike Farron, he had called Jeff and said, Hey, you know, this girl just got hired. It's going to be a big splash, but I just want you to know, you know, she's there for the job. She wants to do the job. I think you're going to like her. And it, it kind of set up our partnership from there. And Jeff had a full time number two. So the really cool thing as the season went on was anytime Salem and Frederick played each other, which seemed like all the time, Jeff would leave his partner, Jack Keffer, for a couple innings. And he would come and sit in my booth and he would, you know, mic up and, I would get to have a partner for a little bit, which was cool because not only you're getting to bring in an insight on the opposite team, but it's just a fresh voice. you know. It's somebody to kind of bounce your ideas and thoughts off of instead of the walls that you're surrounded by. Um, so it became a very natural thing for us. And I, I was so elated when I, I called him and we were talking at one point and I finally said, Hey man, you know, I got to tell you, I, I had lunch, with Baltimore today. And I don't, I don't think it was a job interview, but it was a good lunch, but I got to tell you, your name was on their call log. So I know. And that's when he had actually told me, he's like, yeah, man, like it's, it's a total secret. It's off. But like I I met with them and we had actually talked about you a little bit. So our first game together at spring training was just tenfold that we had already been on air with each other so many times because I, I had no voice. I had full blown Florida allergies. So I would get through a call and then I was just abusing my mute button so that I could, you know, cough and and take a swig of water. And uh, I remember Pat Vileka hit a home run and I could feel it coming again because I hadn't gotten to catch my breath. And I squeaked it out. It was the most depressing home run call (laughs) anybody's probably ever heard. And luckily, Jeff, you know, he knew and he took over and, and he has an idea, obviously, of where I like to go in the game. And our two viewpoints are so different that they work together because we're not overlapping each other. We each have something else to bring on. But it's just, it's been so fun, not only to work with Jeff, but I mean, Kevin Brown and, and really everybody on that staff. They're just, they're amazing.
0: It was certainly a very pleasant listen uh, in the time that I got to tune in. Uh, you mentioned the Carolina League. Your path is that, I guess, in some way similar to a player working your way up through the minor leagues. Uh, just for the audience that might not be familiar, just kind of articulate uh, what that is with us.
3: Yeah, so I actually started calling games when I was in college. I thought I would be a print journalist and slowly got cracked out of my shell once, you know, I got away from the small town home life. And um from there I really didn't know what I was going to do. About a year and a half after I graduated, I landed very briefly with an independent team and left in the middle of the season. It just it wasn't for me. I I wasn't happy. And got really lucky that in these thousands of phone calls and emails I was sending just to find a place to finish the year, um, the Mobile Bay Bears, who are now defunct, but they were the Diamondbacks affiliate at the time. Uh, Justin Baker was their broadcaster, and he brought me on. And not only did they bring me on to do their on-field hosting and, you know, their digital and stuff like that, but he was actually the first person who said, I, I want to take you in the booth. Um, and I, I want you to be there on a on a full basis. It was a lot of me paying out of pocket so that I could travel, so that I could be in a booth for nine innings. But from there, went to Mobile, the Arizona Fall League. I was there for four seasons. I was with the Frisco Rough Riders as their number two affiliate in 2018. And then, of course, the Salem Red Sox in 2019. And Here we are today with the Orioles, of course, sprinkled in between all that. I've had ACC Network, um, smaller events on ESPN, World Axe, throwing cornhole championships, the stuff that just really grabs your attention. But, you know, a lot of little things in between that have really kept me going.
0: What was the point at which play-by-play really clicked for you, where you you were kind of like, I got this?
3: Oh, gosh. I don't know if I still have had that that (laughs) moment that's clicked. Um, I, I have had various moments in my career of knowing that I, I could belong and, and knowing that I could do it. I've certainly still had just as many moments of why am I here right now? You know, Whose idea was this to bring me here? But it was never because I was a woman. It was just that human essence of judging yourself and, and always comparing yourself to other people. I remember at the end of the 2019 season with Salem and it had stewed around in my head a lot. You look at some minor league broadcasters who are lifers. You know, They've been with these organizations for 40 years and that's where they're ultimately going to retire from when it's all said and done. And I think it finally clicked in my head how they had found their landing and how that had been a spot for them. And what was funny is I had come to that approach. I had said, look, if, if as far as I ever get as being the, the Red Sox broadcaster and, and Salem had been very open that I had a job there as long as I wanted it, which I'm so grateful for, I, I had pretty much had it made up in my mind that I be I would be, I'd be okay hanging my hat on that. And that's the way that plans always work. You make them and you tell yourself you're good with it and then something else comes along. But it's it's definitely been just a ride that I, I wouldn't trade for anything. There are certainly easier paths to get to this point, but I, I love the minor leagues and, and I always will. Well,
0: I go back to um, something that Susan Waldman said When she spoke at my high school class, and this is upwards of 25 years ago, she said that for women to make inroads in uh, radio play-by-play, I think she used Gary Cohen as the example at the time that you have to work your way through, that you have to to get the reps in order to get familiar with what your play-by-play style is going to be. So with that, I'm curious, what was the best lesson you learned along the way with regards to doing play-by-play?
3: There's still a bunch that I'm, I'm actively working on. Uh, definitely the biggest one is just simplifying plays. And I think some of that is the writing background. You want to be a little more flowery, but if you're doing that, you can't catch when a double play is turned. It's already happened. <laughs> so that would be a huge one, but just doing the work beforehand. So you're not getting to a point where you have a pinch hitter and you're you're flipping through trying to make sure that you 100% have the pronunciation of his name or you know, you understand where the other team is at when they're coming into play. You know, are they on top of the league rankings right now? Are they kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel? It always shows when people have and have not done their research, and it's amusing that some people think broadcasters just walk into the booth when it's time to go on air and they start talking, and uh, that that's the end of it. It's it's hours and hours of just digging into the nitty gritty and being on like page 10 of a Google search about a player just to find something that people don't really talk about when it comes to them so that you do give a little something different to the broadcast and what they've already heard. And and it's such a broad answer, I know, but it's, it's preparation. It's key and it's the cliche, but it's true. It doesn't matter what level you're at, if it's rookie ball or the big leagues.
0: Certainly. And uh, Jessica Mendoza, in her time at ESPN, I remember that she talked about the level of preparation that you have to do and how she was getting to the site for the Sunday night baseball game. She was getting there Friday instead of Saturday because she knew she needed that extra day and being able to put the the time in. And I could tell by the way your writing background um, just from listening, the descriptiveness, like the extra word or two that you would throw in to describe the loose left arm of John means that you didn't just say, you know, means into his delivery. So yeah, I, I could definitely, I could definitely tell what was the, What was the coolest uh, thing that happened in year one?
3: It's so hard because I never pictured, oh, you're finally going to make it to the big leagues and you won't be allowed on the field and you won't be allowed to, you know, hug and say hello to your partners and your, you know, the coworkers and the other staff that are there and there won't be fans. And it just, there was so much weird. I won't say it's bad because, I mean, obviously all of these measures were in place for a reason. It it had to be, though, the surprise that the Orioles were. And that just, it sums up why I think it's so funny that people try to really over-quantify this game. Oh, this team is definitely going to get this many wins or, you know, they're they're definitely going to be the bottom of the barrel. And here it is. And nobody wants, nobody still wants to give the Orioles a chance. And they were putting together wins against teams that, according to everybody else, they had no business beating but the truth of the matter was is the preparation and the way that Brandon Hyde and that team approached everything they were so much more prepared than other teams were in that time of chaos and uncertainty and and change to a game that thrives on not changing and just to see that and even though it was through a zoom to see the joy and the reaction for some of these guys who had been passed over by other teams you know it's it's not a secret that we had so many rule five and you know, trade acquisitions and smaller names and yet here they were with these crazy plays from the outfield or, you know, hitting the, the walk-off home run, but there was a runner on second and um, getting to see that in the bigs, it's, <laughs> it's just so fun.
0: Okay, segueing to something a little more serious. When we talked to Rachel Balkovic, the Jared Porter incident had just happened. Now there's another with Mickey Calloway, uh, Trevor Bauer sticking his Twitter followers on a number of women. Uh, I can say that all of these things that happened were appalling and disgusting. Actions mean more, certainly. I asked Rachel just to articulate it from her perspective. From your perspective, what would you say about what's happened uh, in the last month to, to, to two months?
3: Um, it's why representation matters having not just women, but I, I mean, people of all walks of life in multiple roles. And especially when you're talking about a hiring situation with someone, um, because if you, if you pull a pod of 10 people and they are all exactly the same, they run in the same circle, you're not getting that outside perspective. And that's what we're taught so much, especially when we look at baseball and how different the players on the field are, is having the, the differences. Having that diverse background is what makes things so great because then you're starting to pick the good ideas off of other people that you haven't heard in your own circle. Likewise, you're able to have a different set of eyes to pick out weaknesses as well. And I, you only stand to benefit when you include a more diverse group of people. And it's one thing that I've always been grateful. The moment that I got to know the Orioles organization is you see how many women are in such big roles and you know that And I've dealt with my share of situations that haven't been great coming up through this industry, but coming to Baltimore in particular and seeing these higher ups uh, who happen to be female, I knew that that was never going to be a situation uh, that would worry me here because there is a voice even higher than mine. That's going to listen. That's going to take, if I have something to say, they'll take it seriously. And I I know that the path isn't easier. I think men and women still need to equally earn their right to be in their respective jobs. And that's not baseball. That's in life as a whole. But I know the path is also a little clearer as well to have a different voice come in and step in. And I think it's time that we start taking that seriously when we look at who we're lining up to judge those that are being hired.
0: I know that there are an increasing number of women that are working in the minor leagues now. There was one that was local to us, Kirsten Karbach here. I've listened to her a few times and immediately said, this is someone who could be in a major league booth someday. There's Emma Tiedman, I think if I have the name right, and the broadcaster in Visalia, Jill Guerin. Uh, I'm I'm keeping tabs on this because I think it's important. I know that you keep in close touch with them. Um, can you talk about just explain to us the, the relationship that you have with each other as you're uh, supporting each other in trying to move forward?
3: Absolutely. Um, the relationship really grew last year. We got to have a women's summit in Lexington, which is the home of the Legends affiliate. And it was the first time some of us had ever gotten to see each other in person. Um, Mara Sheridan is the broadcaster for the Lynchburg Hillcats. And she and I had gotten to know each other in the Carolina League. She was a number two when I was at Salem. She was with... Um, Fayetteville at the time. So she made an upward move, but into a different part of the league. Um, Jill Geerin is with the Visalia Rawhide, but we had the same background in that she interned for the Boston Red Sox before she became the voice of Visalia. And of course, Emma with Portland. Um, I actually knew Emma when I was in Frisco and she was in Lexington. Her father is in the Rangers Hall of Fame. She's got broadcasting in her blood. So unlike me, Emma had put on the headset when she was a kid. <laughs> and had kind of followed the family business, and it was just so cool to get to meet other women. Kirsten and I had seen each other from time to time at spring training, and she actually um, she hasn't left baseball, but she has changed out of broadcasting. And the the really neat thing about her departure is she made sure that she put a woman in her place, which was Emily Messina. Um, she was a, a help with the Lynchburg Hillcats in 2019, and really, really wanted to try to find her voice in broadcasting and to see Kirsten give that to her. And now Emily's going to get to have that experience for the first full time. Um, it's really cool. So all of these women just bring such a different perspective. And I think it's unique too, in the fact that when I first got into this in 2014, Kirsten and I were kind of right around the same starting point. Of course, I, was, I wasn't really an official number two at that point. I was just someone who got to be in the booth. But now seeing everybody come up, they have different experiences than the women who have been in the big leagues. And there's not a lot, if any, other than myself, I think, who have had that travel up from the minor leagues into the big leagues. So understanding the bus rides and the days where they forget to give you your you know, $20 per diem and um, the bus breaking down at three o'clock in the morning or how <laughs> to navigate player and manager relationships. And when someone's called up or demoted or rehab, I mean, there's... I could go for an hour about all of them, but it just it makes me all the more elated for them given how often we talk and how much we root for each other, knowing now that there is a minor league schedule and that they actually get to get back behind a microphone again and call baseball. You know, it's not just them, everybody who's a minor league broadcaster deserves to be back in the booth again, but to know these people personally and what they've been through and the sacrifices they've made to have these roles and to push themselves forward and, and tell them that they deserve it. And that's everything. And it was actually funny. I had accepted Baltimore, but it wasn't public at all. Um, I didn't even know it was going to be a job offer until it came to me. <laughs> and about a week later, uh, Mike Antonellis with the Portland Sea Dogs, he had called me and he said, okay, I'm actually going to go to Pawtucket. I want you to come to Portland. And I couldn't tell him that I already had a job. So I, I, th- I said, you know, man, it's just, it's so late in the season. I'm so sorry. I said, but, you've got to look for Emma Tiedemann. And I knew she was applying. I knew she was trying to move up out of Lexington and she had been there for quite some time. And I'm just, I was so elated when he said, yeah, I've actually been looking at her stuff and she looks really great and, and she's thriving there. But it's not an industry where we're looking to tear each other down. And I think that's a misconception is, you know, females just naturally prey on each other like that. Um, that's a perception that the outside world, I think, tries to push on us. But the reality of the situation is it's climbing up the ladder and holding everybody else's hands behind you so that you're all going up there together.
0: I've listened uh, between you, Susan Waldman, Emma, Kirsten, all highly capable, all highly recommended listens, all very good. And I think hopefully someday this kind of becomes the norm that that we're not even necessarily talking about. We're just saying good broadcaster. So two last things here. We've talked for about 15 minutes or so. We haven't mentioned uh, numbers, which is our thing. How do you integrate numbers into the broadcast, especially the more advanced stuff?
3: So this is the fun give and take here is that Jeff Arnold is very, very much a numbers guy. He can crunch them all day. He can go into it. I somehow got cut from the old school ilk of just keeping it in layman's terms. If there's somebody else who can introduce a newer statistic to fans, but in a much more relatable way, I'm all for it. And it's been really cool this last year. We got to have Sarah Langs on a lot and that's kind of her bread and butter as is Alex fast of just saying, you know, Hey, here's this one stat that is six words in its name. um, But this is what it actually means when you break it down. And I think it's, it's okay to introduce something new, especially if you have a lull and you have the time to explain it. But for the most part, if it's in the middle of a play, just, just keeping with the regular stuff, I, I usually throw out wins and losses. I I think focusing on what the pitcher has actually done um, and not even ERA sometimes. It's just, it's so crazy in my mind, how much pitcher stats are changing. And I think we're finally getting more accurate pictures of the pitchers themselves by, you know, diving deeper on it. Hitters, hitters, we've already gone there. I think we've done everything possible to break them down but yeah, just, just layman's terms for fans. And, and what I'll do is, you know, every two weeks or so I'll pick a stat that's kind of jumping out to me an advanced statistic and I'll make sure that I break it down. I'll write it on a flash card and say, okay, this is what it means in black and white. This is simple. Um, so that way by the time I do talk about it on air, it's a much simpler, smoother process than, Oh, you know, this is his weighted batting average when it's 75 degrees or higher and it's the new ball, not the juice ball and this, and, you just you have fun with it, but keep it simple.
0: All right. Let's do two quick Orioles things here before we let you go. Um, the Orioles are admittedly, as you, you alluded to, sort of uh, <laughs> they're, they're in a division in which the four other teams are projected by fan to win at least 83 games. The Orioles are not. Um, so let's not necessarily talk about this from a chances perspective. Let's talk about this from a, what are some things that fans can kind of enjoy from this team. Uh, one would be Trey Mancini is back. What can they expect from him?
3: Every single report that we've heard from Trey Mancini so far and the staff around him is that he's completely ready to go. He didn't look like he missed a beat if we had a Zoom call with him over last year while he was going through his treatment as he was training. I mean, how many people do you see battling cancer? And they're like, oh yeah, I'm still, you know, I've got my squats and my lunges in and I'm going through, you know, routines here at the apartment with my dogs." <laughs> it was so impressive to see him redefine battling cancer the way that he has. And now, of course, he's launched the Trey Mancini Foundation, and I'm excited to see where that goes too. But um, we've gotten to see a little bit of B-roll footage, of course, that's all recorded and filmed on the backfields while they're there right now. Of course, we we don't get to be in Florida yet, but he, he looks like Trey. He looks like he hasn't missed a beat. And what I think is going to be the most fun, and really he kind of sums it up for the rest of the team, for fans, is just the intrigue that we're about to see this year. You know, Matt Harvey and, and Felix haven't been seen in quite some time. And now they're going to see Trey Mancini, but Trey Mancini at first base and as a designated hitter and occasionally in the outfield. And I just think that little refresh of mixing things up, it's going to leave people on their toes of, of you know, hey, what's, what is possibly going to happen next?
0: <laughs> All right, give us one player, hitter or pitcher, of whom you would say he's better than you might think.
3: Mickey Janus has been widely overlooked, but I'm very curious to see how he does in camp. This is a knuckleballer who I worked with alongside the Fall League a couple years ago. He and his family have been outstanding as a, as a human being, but he has really interesting command and control when it comes to this. And of course, you don't see a true knuckleball first pitcher, but look, we, we have a guy throwing the dead fish. So I think having that irrational pitching style for us is going to kind of be our thing this year. I'm very curious to see if he's able to bust the bubble of those guys waiting to break the bullpen roster.
0: That'll be, uh, that'll be one to watch, uh, certainly. Uh, along with, as you said, Matt Harvey and Felix Hernandez. Interesting. Formerly great, now <laughs> reclamation. But maybe they find themselves uh, in Baltimore. Last question. Uh, what advice do you have for future play-by-play announcers, men or women?
3: You have to want it. And that's exactly it. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. And I think that was a benefit for my family that they never let me think that I was alone or that it was weird that I was doing this. So I I didn't really notice until 2018 that there weren't many women doing it. I just did it because that's what I wanted to do. That was my job. That's what I knew my calling in life was. This is the first year that I've made above the poverty level in yearly income. And that's working four jobs. That's bartending and teaching and doing everything i could to weave stuff in between getting broadcasting gigs and you know i'm about to be 30 and there there were moments of tears there were moments of close friends and family saying you know i th- think it's time for a career change but i knew this is what i was put on this earth to do and it's one of the toughest jobs to really be able to fight through and to just survive but if you keep pushing every day that you choose to continue to pursue this industry is another day that somebody else drops out and eventually you're going to find your niche. And it may not always be where you think it is. I've seen people start in baseball and end up in basketball. I've seen people move over to the music industry side of things and everywhere in between. But I definitely think if you let go of your expectations of this is exactly how I want to get there and this is exactly the job I want to do and you say, you know what, path is open. Any job that comes my way, if it's relevant, I'll take it. Wherever I end up, I'll take it. It, it makes the journey so much more enjoyable, but you got to be where your feet are and you have to fight like crazy to, to keep yourself here.
0: Worked for me, worked for you, uh, Melanie Newman, uh, on the rise in the broadcast business. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. The 2021 SIS Football Rookie Handbook is coming soon. Featuring scouting reports on more than 250 players entering the NFL in 2021, the handbook is a must-read for football fans. The book is written as if you, the reader, are one of the team's decision makers. We capture every strength and weakness both through scouting and statistical analysis, and we've got the most detailed injury information in the scouting industry. The handbook also features essays on important football topics and provides an in-depth take from the perspective of every position on the field. New this year, it will be available on Kindle. To order the Football Rookie Handbook, go to www.actasports.com or wherever our books are sold we're joined by scott bush ceo of the society for american baseball research each year sabre puts on an analytics conference and this year it's virtual it will be held march 11th through 14th the conference brings together the top minds in the baseball analytics community to discuss debate and share insightful ways to analyze baseball you can learn more about it at saberorg backslash analytics. And I want to spotlight that students get discounted admission with free Sabre membership and a complimentary RepSoto certification course. SIS helps in selecting the research presentations. There will be more than a dozen of those. Guest speakers as well, a case competition for students. Scott, thanks for joining us. What are some of the highlights of this year's conference?
2: Mark, great to be here. Thanks for Thanks for having me. Well, I think you covered it uh, quite a bit in the intro there. Uh, We've got a lot of the usual flavor here. Excited this year to introduce more biomechanics. We've got an entire panel filled with folks who are actively working for clubs, as well as uh, Dr. Glenn Fleissig from the American Sports Medicine Institute working on that. Uh, We're certainly seeing an influx of biomechanists inside of major league organizations and, and a lot more integration of their work with the more traditional analytics work. So I'm excited to have that going on. And we've got an entire sort of section of uh, Seam Shifted Wake presentations, which I'll cover a little bit further, I think, in the next question, which I'm excited about. Uh, and then also we've got uh, we've got a great panel featuring three different analysts for major league clubs, talking about the the varying roles and skill sets of the work of baseball analysts
0: and a number of uh, TV personalities will be uh, leading those and speaking as well right
2: that's right so uh, Brian Kenny who uh, has been kind enough to be a major part of this conference since its inception uh, as well as Eduardo Perez who similarly has has been a part of this for a while are both uh, are both participating so we're excited to have them join us too
0: Excellent. All right, so give us a brief present, uh, brief rundown on uh, research presentations.
2: Yeah. So actually, eighteen in total, three of which are student presentations, and they really run the gamut. We've got, we've got things that are analyzing uh, the National League's DH experiment. We've got got analysis of KBO. We've got neural activity in psychology. Uh, But the the grouping that I'm most excited about, you know, Seam Shifted Wake has become really a topic du jour around baseball analytics circles. And we've got three different research presentations from some of the leading researchers on that issue, Barton Smith, Glenn Healy, and Dr. Alan Nathan, uh, as well as Clay Nunnally, who's a baseball scientist at Major League Baseball, talking about talking about seam shifted wake and so we're really fortunate it's pretty rare to have an annual conference and and have the timing really align with something that a topic that's starting to have a moment uh and so we're fortunate that those things have aligned for us this year
0: all right so for someone who might say that they're on the fence that they're just a baseball person and this might not be for me what would you say to them
2: yeah, it's a lot, right? I mean, I, I've talked about neural networks. I've talked about seam shifted wake, uh, and and I understand why maybe some folks might say, "Boy, this is this is a little bit out of my depth." I'll put it this way: um, if you're interested in baseball and you are always interested in learning more about how baseball works, this is a great conference. Are there things that you're not going to understand? Yes, there are a lot of things I don't understand that happen at this conference, um, but that actually makes it more fun for me because then you go, okay, well, that's actually something I'd like to dig into and learn a little bit more about. And so if you've ever wondered, hey, what's that conference all about? This is a great opportunity to just give it a try because we're a lot less expensive in a virtual environment than we typically are. Uh, So it's just a great opportunity to give it a spin.
0: And as as, uh, I mentioned before, uh, Spotlighting, students get discounted admission with free Sabre membership, which is awesome as someone who's a longtime member, and a complimentary uh, Rapsodo certification course. All right, uh, Scott, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Sabre.org to learn more about Sabre. Boy, this was a fun show. This wraps up the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. Thanks to Tony Kemp, Melanie Newman, Scott Bush, and our producer, Justin Stein. Please rate and review the show if you can. We look forward to talking to you again in March. Stay safe and stay well.
2: Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.